A weird week in the legislature and mounting support for Katie Beckett waivers. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of February 25th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Thanks for tuning in, as always. Uh, This week, we have probably a whole lot of news to cover, but I think we're just mostly going to focus on uh, one of the weirder twists and turns, uh, which really had to do with House Speaker Glenn Cassida. Um, It was quite a week for the speaker. Uh, It went from scrutiny from uh, local and national reporters to uh, a a bombastic op-ed that ran in our own publication, uh, continued to um, uh, protesters that he faced, as well as not showing up at a uh, a district event. So let's uh, let's unpack this a little bit. So Natalie, uh, first things first, um, on last Tuesday, the day that this podcast uh, previously aired, uh, what happened? A uh, liberal media news site of sorts that's just started, it's called the Tennessee Holler, they posted a video uh, that showed Justin Canoe. He was a former Democratic candidate for a District 7 uh, congressional seat, lost to Mark Green. Uh, he posted a video from last month at a town hall event where he approaches Glenn Cassida and wants to talk about Cassida's support of David Byrd. Um, wants to ask why, you know, given the allegations by multiple women last year that David Byrd had sexually assaulted them while they were teenagers playing on his basketball team at Wayne County High School, uh, why Cassida would continue to defend him and even promote him to a position of leadership, making him a chairman of an education subcommittee. So this video, it was about, I think, five, six minutes long. It was uh, it was kind of, it looked like surreptitiously taken, or at least a hidden hidden video. Yeah, um, he said he, Justin, I had called and asked him what the deal was. Was this hidden? And he said he was sort of holding his phone out to the side. So I, I don't know if Casta was aware of it. So Canoe is asking a series of questions, uh, specifically about the allegations against David Byrd. Again, to recap, it's several women from back when he was in uh, a coach in, in, in high school 80s, in the 1980s. Yes. Right. Uh, alleged that he had done inappropriate things with them when they were 15, 16 yeah. years old. Yeah. So um, Casta essentially is talking in a larger sense about what he would do if he were a rape victim. Uh, not something that you necessarily hear every day from a politician. Sure. So, so the context of that is at, at one point, Justin starts pressing Cassidy on, why don't you believe these women? You know, why do you think they're lying? Uh, he says they've been ostracized in their communities. You know, what what do they have to gain from doing this? And uh, it leads Cassidy to make the comment, well, if, if I were raped, I would move. And then he said, and, and hell would have no fury. Um so, so I heard that, and, and in the newsroom, you know, there was a, a conversation with the editors, and they thought that that was a story. Um, and so I wrote the story, and, and before we ever published, I, I called Cassidy's people and said, do you want to elaborate? Do you want to clarify what he meant by this? What did they say? Uh, no, that they, they didn't want to put in out any, any comment about what he meant by that. They at first were reluctant. You know, they weren't sure if they were going to comment, and then I did get a comment from them um, just saying that, you know, David Byrd should be innocent until proven guilty, Side note, he he has not been um, charged criminally or, to our knowledge, there has never been any kind of criminal investigation opened up into uh, the allegations. But they said, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty and Chairman Bird will do a great job um, 
So once again, doubling down on support for Byrd, uh, for those that may or may not remember, last year when Byrd was running for re-election uh, in September, Glenn Cassidy's uh, uh, PAC essentially ran ads on online that said uh, that Byrd's victims uh, uh, essentially were filled with, quote, lies and fake news, essentially. Uh, so really just kind of painting this as a, uh, you know, this is the this is just all, all nonsense, basically, uh, being peddled against David Byrd. Um, very next day, things start to take a more interesting turn um, because this started to get more attention. So in the in the uh, local media, more people went to the Capitol. Again, this is last Wednesday. Uh, we also saw CNN show up at the Cordell Hall building. Um, and eventually, it looked like there was going to be some more attention paid to these comments because uh, they just seemed to um, not only be uh, a little bit out of touch, but also uh, sort of victim blaming, right? Like to say, oh, well, why would you wait 30 years, you know? And, and this is kind of a thing that uh, advocates for sexual assault victims, rape victims, ultimately say you cannot turn this on its face and blame the people that are victims in this scenario. Yeah, it appeared, it, you know, the implication of his comments was that um, it's up to the women to do something, you know, if, if they're in this position of being raped, what should they have done differently? Uh, instead of turning the conversation as Justin and many advocates are doing to know what should Bird be doing, what should the people um, who, who he answers to be doing about his position of leadership. And, and he was reelected, uh, but he continues to be in the legislature. Um, so yeah, we, we didn't hear anything from them really for a day and a half. We published that story Tuesday afternoon. Uh, of course, I had reached out to his office to clarify what he meant. They, they didn't want to clarify his comments. We didn't hear anything. Until um, until we were told uh, that there would be an op-ed running in the Commercial Appeals website. For those that don't know, Commercial Appeal, the Tennessee and the Knoxville News Sentinel, we all share the same publication uh, you know, company that publishes our material. So somebody uh, got in our system. We found out that it was, uh, you know, it, it, it appeared to be our editorial board and essentially published a piece from Glenn Cassidy, the speaker, again, uh, which is headlined, Focus on Claims One-Sided. Uh, throughout the piece, uh, you get several um, uh, essentially attacks uh, where uh, the speaker says that, um, again, America's, this is a direct quote, first uh, paragraph, America's justice system has a responsibility to enforce the sacred principle of being innocent until proven guilty. Our justice system also has a duty to carry out due process for those accused of crimes. Throughout the piece, he essentially alleges that um, the media, including us, look the other way when it comes to Democrats and issues that they face, but Republicans, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, get the attack. Uh, they cite Brett Kavanaugh, that sort of a thing. Uh, in this, Cassida continues, quote, where, where are the media reports twisting Democrat leaders' words out of context to fit a false narrative, as this very paper did, when it falsely and maliciously claimed I suggested victims of rape should, quote, just move in a recent article about accusations against Representative David Byrd, citing anonymous websites? Uh, that's quite a, a claim right there to say that you, quote, falsely and maliciously attacked him. Uh, I know that you didn't falsely and maliciously attack him. I was there with you while making that decision on whether this is a story. Um, because Glenn Cassida is facing some heat, he is pushing back. So therefore, he is using this. And this is the first time that he has faced the scrutiny that he is he's really taken as the House Speaker. So I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Speaker, if you think 
think that this went a little bit too far because you're uncomfortable with the questions. But frankly, when you come out and you victim blame people, you're going to face some some criticism for that, including critical articles that aren't opinions. It, it was not an opinion. Uh, and, and, and thank you for, uh, affirming that I was not falsely or maliciously taking his words out of context. As we discussed, they had every opportunity to clarify what they meant by that. Uh, and they chose not to. And ultimately after this op-ed publishes, I call up Cade Cothran, the speaker of the house's chief of staff. And I say, what is this? Why did you guys go this route? He says, we were presented with an opportunity to uh, either clarify the statement that we gave Natalie or uh, to publish this op-ed. We decided to go with the latter. Okay. Uh, So if, again, in their mind, there was a false statement out there, why wouldn't they clarify it earlier when uh, CNN is descending on the Capitol, when local reporters are descending on the Capitol? You would think that, again, why wait 24 hours to clarify this statement? To me, it seems like it's political calculus. To me, it seems like this is an effort to say, I've done no wrong. Uh, Again, I, I get it. We've seen politicians do this multiple times. When they say something that may be controversial, they're afraid to back it up, so they change the narrative. Donald Trump does this all the time, doesn't he? Yeah, no, he does. And then that's, I think, what um, was it? Was it the scene? Someone in the scene compared his his op ed to a Trump like uh, op ed, and and yeah, that's that's what we ran. And so I think ultimately what this changes this this piece really. Uh, there's another part of it that I thought was really uh, kind of something. Quote, I'll also be the first to tell you that I've seen firsthand how political operatives and media will readily, happily and irresponsibly betray actual victims of sexual misconduct as a means to an end in order to achieve their agenda. Uh, The Speaker of the House is essentially saying that he defends people that are facing allegations, but doesn't need to look into those allegations because he is innocent until proven guilty. But there is no process to actually look into whether he's innocent or guilty. Sure, yeah. And and I've asked him, you know, multiple reporters have asked him in in recent months, recent weeks, does anything need to be done? And he said, no, I I don't see any need for any further action. Um, Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally the other day said if it were happening in his chamber, he likely would have asked the the ethics committee to at least review it. Now, what that would accomplish, I'm not really sure. But Cassida hasn't actually taken any action. Speaker Beth Harwell didn't really do anything. She did say last year that Burt should resign. She didn't, you know, call for any investigation, but she at least didn't publicly support him without any questions asked. I have heard from multiple Republicans up on the Hill so far that have said, you know, this is just, uh, they, they buy into the, the Cassidy line of thinking, uh, that this is just the media attacking Republicans. Um, I would say we would go after anybody that is harboring, protecting, creating an environment that may or may not uh, make uh, women, people that are going to the Capitol feel safe. And I think by by essentially victim blaming these folks saying that they don't remember this correctly. Oh, I would have done this if it were me. Um, uh, you're essentially creating an environment where people may not feel comfortable going to the speaker's office to say, hey, I got harassed because you're going to feel like, well, will they believe me? 
and 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 you can talk about this more, Joel. But there's some history there. There's there's, there's his relationship with Jeremy Durham. There and is this isn't the first time this has come up. When when Glenn Cassida heard the first allegations against Jeremy Durham in our publication, when we wrote about them, he said, "I don't believe it. This is nonsense. This is BS." He doubled down. He tripled down. He kept backing him until the AG report came out, which found 22 women had some kind of inappropriate interaction with Jeremy Durham over a multi-year process. So it took an AG investigation for Glenn Cassidy to suddenly believe, oh, well, this guy actually isn't as good as I once thought. He lied to me is uh, the direct quote I remember him saying. So again, I think the issue is not about whether you're a Democrat or Republican. We go after and we look at anybody that is creating an environment where people cannot feel safe in a building that is filled with powerful people and powerful factors at play. And and for the record, Cade uh, had made similar comments to me when I first reached out requesting, you know, some kind of response saying, why aren't you going after Democrats? You wouldn't do this in this situation if it um, had been a Democrat who was, you know, approached in the hallway by a, a reporter or whatnot. And I told him, I said, if you all know of a Democrat who's who has allegedly done the things that that Bird is accused of doing, please tell me because I will report on it. And as we did earlier this session, when London Lamar said that everybody, yes. all Republicans are racist, what yes. did we do with that story? We wrote about it. I wrote about it. London wasn't happy about it. Of course not. But we wrote the story and everyone moved on and uh, Again, <laughs> this didn't happen. Our goal is uh, to really ultimately expose sexual misconduct, harassment, whatever at the Capitol, because I see it every day. We know that it happens, but it's it, it's it's difficult to get people to share those stories because of comments of policies that are in place that prevent them from feeling comfortable. Uh, so let's move on. Uh, last Thursday, uh, Glenn Cassida is then at an event. He's appearing uh, to be at a news conference and he gets uh, briefly uh, confronted by Justin Jones, who is an activist at the uh, Capitol, who essentially wants to fight and argue why the Nathan Bedford Forrest bus should not be at the Capitol. Same uh, guy who held a sit in at his office, what, the week before with, yeah, with some yeah. other students locally. So there's a ble- brief clash, um, d- depending on who you talk to. I was actually there. Uh, Justin Jones uh, said that uh, Cassida pushed him, um, uh, assaulted him, I believe, at one point I heard. Um, Cassida essentially stuck up his forearm to, uh, it looked like, prevent Justin from getting too close to his person. Um, and so it, it was just a weird, hectic situation. In the aftermath of that pre- Press conference, Cassida tries to leave very quickly. State troopers stop reporters, including yourself, Natalie, from exiting a, yeah. a, a chamber. It was yeah, well, very weird. Right after Cassida went in the press conference, you know, Justin and, and another woman tried to come after him and sort of yelled into the room as the door was being slammed in their face. You know, Glenn Cassida's a racist. Then they started beating on the doors. So so that exchange overshadowed the whole press conference. But yes, when it was time to leave, uh Cassida sort of escaped from a side door. The troopers blocked us, the reporters from exiting uh, for a minute or so. And um, and we had to we had to demand to be let out. And then fast forward one more day to Friday. Uh, Glenn Cassidy is supposed to be among this group of, of folks, uh, Republican lawmakers in Franklin, to hold a uh, district session uh, or like a like a town hall event. Yeah. Um, and you essentially have a woman uh, that stands up uh, and and says. 
where are you guys on this this David Byrd situation? Uh, if you're defending him, then you are complicit in in you know perpetuating this culture of harassment at the Capitol. And and Cassidy didn't show at this event, so no, he didn't. And and really, only one of the men on stage re- responded to her. Brandon Nogles, yeah, you know, he at least acknowledged her question. Uh, Sam Whitson said, "I I have to go. I, you know, basically, I have better things to do. I have people waiting for me at the Capitol." Jack Johnson and the Senate. You know, he just sat there and he didn't he didn't acknowledge what she said. Ogle's answer, though, was essentially there's a bill in the legislature that would allow victims uh, of of rape uh, to it would like essentially change the statute of limitations on it. So he says, because there's that bill, Republicans do care about victims. Well, I mean, come on, there's fifteen hundred bills and there's one that you're going to point to as a defense to say the Republicans care about this issue. And and I don't know that Cassidy is particularly involved in that. I don't bill think in he any is. Anyway, and, uh, you know, that. This is the first that I've heard them use that as a response to the David Byrd situation, although maybe it will become a talking point. We'll see. I don't know that the Byrd situation is the only thing that is going to draw attention. This ultimately the issue is do lawmakers take sexual misconduct harassment seriously? When you have a non-mandatory or you have a mandatory training in the Senate that lasts five minutes for a video and you have, uh, you know, an in-person training where lawmakers are sitting on their phones in the House, it's difficult to say you're winning that battle of combating sexual harassment in a very serious way. Kind of piggybacking off of our conversation there, we've got David Plazas, who is the opinion and engagement editor here at the Tennessean and USA Today Network, uh, to talk a little bit more about this this opinion piece from from House Speaker Glenn Cassida. So first off, David, uh, thanks for joining us. And how did this kind of come about? Initially, we were told by our editor that this would be coming, but we weren't sure how it mm-hmm. actually came to fruition. Yeah, thanks, Jill and Natalie. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, so how it came about was that uh, the Cassida uh, folks uh, approached us. So I received a call from his spokesman uh, asking if an op-ed could go on. And I said, be happy to consider it. And so we received uh, the op-ed, and this was after a day after the story had run, uh, reviewed it. I uh, shared it with our different editorial board members uh, across the network of the state, uh, flagging a couple of things. You know, are we sure we want to print everything as said, you know, whether it's re- references to malicious or references to uh, uh, the left-leaning. And uh, we made a decision that we wanted him to have his say in his own words. Uh, there was a brief editor's note. Um, but obviously one of the things, one of the criticisms we fielded certainly has been, did we back our reporter, Natalie Ellison? And, and, and yes, absolutely, we back her 100%. Um, but we also made a commitment to a lot of uh, legislators in the past that we were open to different op-eds, and we've been trying to stay with that commitment. One thing I want to press you on, did anything change from from when it initially got submitted to ultimately ended up being published? So for, from the time we received it, we made a decision not to change anything okay. in the op-ed, with the exception of adding the editor's note. And what was the internal conversation among the folks on the editorial board across, it sounds like, the network uh, on the specific lines I thought were the most interesting out of that piece were false and malicious? Mm-hmm. I mean, what what was that internal conversation like? So the internal conversation was about, you know, how do we essentially balance doing what we say we're going to do, which is welcoming these diverse voices and at the same time uh, respecting our own credibility? Um, we decided that given that we're doing this on our own platform, on our terms, because it's, it's – uh, the network in, in the state in its entirety, that we felt it was um, worth providing him a voice, providing him an opportunity to express his viewpoint, which we 
neither agree or disagree with. In this case, obviously, the only point that we uh, had of contention is we disagree with the fact that uh, that a reporter is not credible. The other thing that I, I mean, since the op-ed has been published, I've noticed several people that say essentially you gave a platform to a guy to not only say something that was attacking our own publication, but it was also uh, kind of demeaning um, to victims of sexual assault. Right? Uh, there was a, a response from this Nashville scene where they essentially said, by giving this man a platform, you're putting down uh, victims of sexual assault and harassment. What's what do you say about that? You know, it's one of those things. Anytime we receive an op-ed, especially one that's controversial, you know, I always am rethinking: Did we do the right thing? And um, you know, with this one, obviously, I'm I'm reflecting quite a bit on the fact that I never want our reporters or our institution to feel that we're being attacked or we're attacking ourselves that we don't have each other's backs. So that's definitely one regret that that got out there that uh, that it created the impression that somehow we were not supportive of of our journalists with regard to sexual assault victims. Um, the, I read the open letter uh, from the scene. It was a very, very powerful letter. And one of the things I want to assure the public about is that we support victims of sexual assault, and we have for a long time in our cooperation with organizations like the YWCA and the Sexual Assault Center, who were named People of the Year just a few months ago. Uh, so that that is certainly uh, uh, regrettable. One of the challenges we have in terms of being a platform for multiple voices is you know, how do we essentially start weighing, you know, and this, we're going to have more open conversations about how do we address those things that might be controversial demeaning, because when we talk about what is that red line, what do, don't we publish, what do we publish, um, sometimes it's hard. Uh, I know that I got a comparison, someone asked, uh, you know, would you publish Adolf Hitler's op-ed, and I can answer no, I wouldn't, and, and I've written in a column a few weeks ago related to someone who talked about proudly wearing his Make America Great Again hat, uh, which was uh, the most recent controversial op-ed that we published, that, uh, you know, we want people to have the opportunity to feel like they have a say. You know, one area where we need to do better at is building trust among our readers, and at the same time, not being seen as a partisan platform just for left-leaning voices. But, uh, you know, this is the, there are many lessons learned. Obviously, we, um, uh, we want to be a place where people feel like they can express their viewpoints, but we don't want to demean people or demean our own reporters. David, do you all, uh, you personally, the editorial board, plan on doing anything further to respond to Cassidy's op-ed? Have you all determined that yet? So as an editorial board, we haven't had the discussion yet. Uh, I myself am going to be crafting a piece that may be a column, it may be an editorial, uh, depending on what the editorial board says, uh, basically talking about the fact that we support our reporters. One last question I have. Um, the editorial board, I, I mean, for those that don't know it, who, who does that consist of? So the people that I consulted with in the Tennessean's editorial board are uh, Michael Anastasi, who's the regional editor, uh, Maria DeVereen, who's the executive editor, and then from Knoxville New Sentinel, Joel Christopher, who's the executive editor there, and Mark Russell from the Memphis Commercial Appeal. Thank you, David. We appreciate you coming on. We, you know, this has uh, been talked about uh, widely over the weekend on social media, obviously responses from other publications to how we handled this. Uh, so we did want to have you on to explain the process here, uh, what we've learned through this experience and, and what might come next. I appreciate it. And again, you know, as I mentioned to Natalie offline, you know, I apologize for any flack that you received because I know you received it and just know that we support you. I 100%. appreciate that. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan's administration took interest in a girl named Katie Beckett. She had contracted a brain infection at five months old and suffered paralysis that left her seriously debilitated. When she was ready to return home, 
where she would receive care by her parents. Her family reached a $1 million private insurance cap and was facing the prospect of losing Medicaid coverage because she didn't live in an institution or nursing home. The Reagan administration took action and created a program that allowed Katie Beckett to live at her home and retain her Medicaid coverage. Since then, hundreds of thousands of disabled children around the country have benefited from the program. But that's not quite the case in Tennessee. With me today is Sarah Sampson, Deputy Director of the Tennessee Disability Coalition, and Tennessee and Storytelling Coach Jessica Bliss, who are here to talk about the ongoing effort by families across the state this session. So first off, uh, Sarah, give us sort of the basics of what a Katie Beckett waiver is and how Tennessee compares to other states. Mm. So a... Katie Beckett waiver or a TEFRA waiver program would allow kids who have a certain level of care and qualify as disabled individuals under the Social Security Act to access Medicaid services regardless of their parental income. So kids who need access to health care through Medicaid, the breadth of services or the depth of services that Medicaid can offer them, that would allow access again, regardless of parental income. So if their parents make just a little bit too much money to qualify for 10 care right now, then just that child would be able to access 10 care in Tennessee. Hmm. And it works differently. This, this type of program works differently in different states. So there's some flexibility around what Tennessee wants to craft a program to meet these families' needs looks like. Uh, you have... To our, our neighbors to the west, Arkansas, have a TEFRA model, but they have a TEFRA model that also includes a sliding scale premium based on the parental income. And you have neighbors to the north and neighbors to the southeast of Tennessee who have programs specially crafted to meet their state's needs. Mm. On average, across the 40-some states who have a program designed as a pathway to Medicaid for children with long-term disabilities or complex medical needs, on average, about 1,200 kids benefit. And so we're just talking about a small number of children with significant needs. And those needs often include high costs involved. And so the families who, you know, their child getting care, the whole family benefits, because right now you have families who are told to either file bankruptcy in order to handle these high out-of-pocket costs. Or get a divorce is one mm -hmm. I heard recently. Yeah. Yeah. We, we get that a lot, that families are literally counseled that in order to have a lower income in order to qualify now that their so their child could get coverage so, an option is divorce or move out of state so Jessica talk about some of these families that that you know are impacted by this right yeah now. absolutely so I've spent the last couple of months getting to know um, states across uh, families across the state um, who are dealing with um, all the challenges that come with raising children with significant disabilities. And these are children who, you know, you look at one example would be in Middle Tennessee, Rondi and Adam Kaufman. They are raising a little girl um, who has spinal muscular atrophy. So little Adelaide, she can't walk, she can't talk. Their living room, I went to their home, their living room literally looks like an ICU. And 
It's a wonderful family. It's a beautiful family. The dad is a former member of the military. The mom is a doctor, and she is a cancer surgeon. So she is doing something incredible for our community. But that doesn't mean that she is trained to take care of her daughter, right? She's very specialized in her care. And so Adam Kaufman stays home. They have two other children that they're trying to raise as well, so it's not like he can just dedicate all his services to her. Um, And... When she gets really sick, they have to stay up 24 hours a day to make sure that she's still breathing. And if you can imagine two parents who can't sleep, they're, you know, going back and forth hour after hour, you know, taking shifts to make sure that their little girl's still alive. And then the next morning, the mom still has to get up and go to work because she has to provide for their entire family. And they have insurance. They are a middle-income family. But they don't have enough money to cover the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it would cost to get Adelaide the nurse that she needs to stay up so that they don't have to stay up at night. So there was recently, uh, you were there, Jessica, and I'm, I'm sure you were there, Sarah, the, the um, Disability Day on the Hill. Uh, what was the message that some of these families are delivering to lawmakers and what's the reception been like so far? So Disability Day on the Hill is a great annual event, and it has impact because you can see this broader disability community, these hundreds of people come to the state capitol and all collectively advocate for the needs of of the families who would benefit from a Katie Beckett program in Tennessee. So while it's a small number of families who would directly benefit, you had the whole disability community out in force advocating for a program for Tennessee, a dedicated pathway to Medicaid coverage for these kids with long-term disabilities or complex medical needs. And it was amazing this year. We had the Kaufmans were there. We had a number of family leaders from literally across the state, six hours from the east and five hours from the the west, come in and meet with their elected officials and meet with the House and Senate leadership. And it's been a, a supportive General Assembly thus far. There's been quite a lot of interest in meeting these families' needs, which is something that we are so grateful for. And the momentum continues building. It's It's been a good reception so far. We're very hopeful. I think what you see um, with things like Disability Day is, you know, these families didn't just come, the moms and the dads, they brought their children. And I think, you know, the real message gets through when, you know, the lawmakers can actually meet the kids. They can see what changes, who it would directly impact. And when the kids are, you know, climbing up on their couches and their rocking chairs in their offices and, you know, running around playing with the toys and, you know, giving them hugs and, you know, that I think it really helps them truly understand the need um, and see it. Well, and the amount of attention that I'm sure goes with taking care of these kids, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like that you, you couldn't literally turn your eye because mm-hmm. something could happen. And it was, I mean, that was interesting. And in, in one of the cases, one of the families that I was um, with, Jennifer Schultz, she's a um, single mom who is raising a young boy, Hatcher, who has autism, Down syndrome, and an undiagnosed um, autoimmune disease. And um, I mean... When he was in these offices, he was 
running around and she really, she almost barely couldn't get any words out. She could not really sit and say what she wanted to say to these lawmakers because she, you know, she was running around with her kiddo who she said was feeling really anxious because he thought he was in a doctor's office. Cause that's what he does so often. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, yes, absolutely. It was a real life, you know, true to what she experiences as a home, but in, you know, this lawmaker's office. Hmm. Yeah. And so actually there has been a bill filed that would create a Katie Beckett program for Tennessee, HB 0498, SB 0476. And the primary sponsors are Representative Sam Whitson and Senator Kerry Roberts. But actually, Disability Day on the Hill was so impactful. These families bringing their kids to the Hill was so impactful that literally right afterwards, we had a number of co-sponsors join the bill. Hmm. And co-sponsors who, I mean, we had been in the meetings with these families who really helped inspire their legislators to 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 step up and to sponsor and help support this. So bill. what exactly would this bill do? So right now, this bill is a placeholder, and the sponsors are working alongside the governor's administration, TenCare, the the state's Medicaid Bureau, and the Department of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities that really has the authority to prepare provide policy and planning for individuals with developmental disabilities on the language that would create a program specifically for Tennessee, right? Because we have some flexibility in what that looks like. So for right now, we are continuing to share the need with our, our, our General Assembly while they work on the logistics. Part of the discussion, um, obviously, there's always, you know, what's it going to cost, mm-hmm. right? And as we were on the Hill and as we were going in these different lawmakers' offices, that was that was the first question, you know. But, well, you know, it's just we have to see if there's funding. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at TenCare now, they will um, point to a service that they have they provide through their Employment and Community First Choices program. Um, and they will say that there is a pathway, um, you know, to 10 care for some of these families. Um, there is a group four within the Choices program um, that does, that was created for children with intellectual and developmental disabilities that does give services regardless of a parent's income, which is kind of the sticking point here. Um, But that program was designed specifically really to help older children, you know, 18 years old, to get a job, to keep a job. So if they need services so that they can go to work every day, if they need, you know, an aide to go with them, or if they need somebody to help them, you know, go on job interviews and fill out employment, that's what the program was designed for. The program is also full. It's, um, you know, has 800 plus recipients right now. And there's, I mean, there's not technically waiting lists anymore in Tennessee. They kind of dissolved that. But there's no real room for families with really young children. And that is the population that this is really looking to serve is those, you know, with really young kids who maybe aren't even school age yet. Yeah. And it's a program, a Katie Beckett program would be designed to provide health services, right? right? Not employment services Mm -hmm. like the employment Mm community-based choices program that currently exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're looking at a new program for Tennessee and, and frankly, It's 2019. Six years ago, we started talking about a Katie Beckett program in Tennessee. And there was families who at that point needed a program. And and you, Joel, started off the conversation about the 
Katie Beckett waiver initiating in 1981. And so, you know, children have been born, families have struggled, children have passed away waiting for something to help lift the burden, the financial burden from their families. And, you know, it's been six years since the last effort, since the last group of families organized for a Katie Beckett program in Tennessee. And I don't think they should have to wait any longer. Well, that's about all we have time for today. But, uh, you know, I'm sure we will continue to watch both your uh, work on on this, you know, type of legislation. Uh, And hopefully this helps serve as an education to some folks that don't know anything about this uh, ever important issue. So thank you again for coming in. Thank you so much. And finally, our usual notebook dump. The mega site out in Memphis area, uh, Jackson area is going to cost at least another $80 million, uh, before it's complete. Um, recently ECD, uh, the economic and community development office, uh, acknowledged that it's going to have, uh, an $80 million request sometime in the future. 174 million has already been appropriated to that project. And that's all before any subsidies or handouts get dished out to the first tenant that comes. Governor Bill Lee says he regrets his participation in Old South parties in college at Auburn University with his fraternity, Kappa Alpha. A photo of him uh, surfaced last week in which he was wearing a Confederate Army uniform as the members of the fraternity did at those parties. Lee says that in hindsight, his, his participation was insensitive and something he regrets. A bill to close the primary election system advanced in the House this week. The bill would not allow independents and those not registered with the Democrat or the Republican Party to participate in primary elections. Nashville Mayor David Briley spoke to lawmakers in a committee last week defending the city's decision to enact a community police oversight board by referendum this fall uh, and speaking out against legislation that would strip the oversight board subpoena power. Uh, House Majority Leader William Lambert responded to him in that calling uh, the people of Nashville, uh, people who were living in a fairy tale land um, and that they weren't supportive enough of police. Governor Bill Lee says he wants to give $30 million to the school safety fund next year and then uh, raise that to $40 million the following year to provide school resource officers in roughly 500 schools around the state currently that don't have officers on campus. Uh, the Lee administration says this is going to be a step in further school safety. And finally, a fiscal note to the natural marriage bill, which would essentially uh, try to undermine the U.S. Supreme Court 2015 uh, decision that uh, legalized same-sex marriage around the country, said that the legislation would cost uh, or jeopardize the uh, at least $9.4 billion in federal funds. Uh, that's a little bit more than previous years when the bill was introduced, uh, which were uh, just uh, shy of that number. But essentially, uh, fiscal review found that the state could lose heavily out on some 10 care funds as well as uh, supplemental uh, nutrition assistance program funds. Thanks again for listening to Grand Divisions. We're available every Tuesday. Uh, You can find us on iTunes, where we hope you uh, continue to rate us. You can also find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Thanks uh, to John Garcia and Erica Whitney, who produced this podcast. As usual, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.